welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Uh, but this, I guess this uh, episode, of course, Faith Moore, my guest, is an interesting person, as always. Um, but we're going to do a bit of a Christmas episode this week. You'll be getting this episode on Wednesday, the Wednesday before Christmas, um, really knocking out those last few days uh, before the pivotal holiday of the American ca calendar. So we're going to talk to Faith more about that in context of uh, her book, A Christmas Carol. That's Carol with a K, uh, published by Daily Wire Books. Um, you can get it anywhere that uh, books are sold, including Amazon. And I checked before this episode that as you are getting it, if you go right after listening to this episode, you can run to Amazon. You can still get this book for Christmas. You can get this novel for Christmas. And as someone who blurbed this book, I can, I'm very proud to say, uh, I think this is a fantastic Christmas present, stocking stuffer, you know, family uh, novel to read, uh, especially in those days, those quiet days between Christmas and New Year's. So Faith Moore, welcome to High Noon. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so let's let's start. Let's get out of the way the sort of connection with politics and the, the lack thereof in this book. Um, so this is a story that takes the original Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol, transposes it into the modern day um, without giving too much away. Right? Uh, this this uh, Christmas Carol with a K. Carol is an overworked mom who is choosing her work over spending time with her family and getting sort of frustrated with the demands of, of family life. And so it's a very clever little juxtaposition. Um, but obviously there is a message here, I think, even in the blurb that went out um, to Amazon and everywhere else that you sell your books, it says, you know, that it's more important to uh, have what matters than to have it all. So there's obviously a message behind this book, but this is not a novel that beats you over the head with a political agenda or anything like that. So how did you balance having a message um, without having sort of the uh, preachy tone that I think a lot of people associate with quote unquote conservative art, right? Yes. And I think that's a huge problem. And I really think that if we're going to take back any portion of the culture, it's something we have to stop doing is we have to stop starting with a message and then telling the story. You have to tell the story first. And if a message happens to come out of it, then okay. But I think the answer to your question is that I didn't really set out with a message of any kind. I, I came up with a story. You know, I thought of this as what would it be like if a workaholic mom went on the journey that Ebenezer Scrooge goes on and would that allow her to kind of come back to her family? And the story of Scrooge is something that is really kind of close to my heart because we, in my family, watch a movie, the Alistair Sim version of the movie, every Christmas. And so for me, it wasn't about, oh, I have some kind of cultural or political thing that I want to say. Let me go ahead and tell it as a story. It was more, oh, I have a story that I want to tell. And once it was told, there were certain themes or, or messages, if you like, that came out of it. And I think that you're right. One of them is about whether or it's about the fact that you can't have it all, that that's a lie. And I think it just kind of explores that rather than kind of tells you anything in particular about it. You might, you might draw a message out of it if you, if you choose, but that wasn't my goal. And I think that that's such an important distinction in terms of telling stories versus, you know, writing op-eds or even, you know, book length works of nonfiction. It's, it's an important distinction to make when we're talking about novels, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, the, uh, despite not being a political book at all, this is this is such an IW book. This is such an independent women's yeah. forum kind <laughs> of book because um, it's all about that that balance that I think we um, we have been so excellent as a group, you know, as an organization of really promoting that that disjoint between um, what the feminist left says that women's lives ought to look like and what women actually want their lives to look like more often than not. And that doesn't mean, you know, women never, you know, never going into the workforce. Obviously we are an organization of women working, but, you know, it does mean we all work from home and we did before the pandemic. Um, you know, it means that our, our internal calls are often punctuated with, um, with toddler voices right. and, um, <laughs> you know, interruptions. And that's like something that we embrace as an organization is that exactly that messiness of balance and the flexibility to try to actually prioritize for women what so many women still uh, say that that what they want um, is to be able to prioritize their family, especially while their children are young. Uh, but it can be so easy, as, as we find out in this book, uh, to, to forget that. And one of the things I like about it is this Carol is not a villain in this book. Um, yeah. A lot of it is is going through her her. <laughs> if she is a villain, she's got an interesting backstory, right? Um, a lot of it is going through uh, how she came to a place where she was prioritizing the material and and perhaps you know sort of advancement and ego and money uh, over the time that she was spending or was able to spend with her family. Um, and in many ways, this is like a story about being disappointed by you know inevitable tragedies in life. Um, and then reacting to those disappointments in a way that ends up continually punishing yourself and everyone around you. Um, that's a very, you know, that's a very human story. How, how did you sort did you sort of start with, I, I know you started with this basic concept of, of uh, transforming Dickens story into, into this one. Um, but how did you come up with how Carol is like, how did she get, how, she, how, how did you come up with the story of uh, basically the woman that you meet in the first couple chapters um, of someone who's by no means evil, but kind of eminently dislikable and then turn her into this character where, you know, I think a lot of women will identify with this, identify with the way that, you know, life has sort of taken her and, and ended up in this place. Yeah, well, it was really important to me that Carol very quickly becomes someone that you at least can have a little bit of compassion for, because otherwise, why go on this journey with her at all? You know, I, I needed you to feel like, okay, I... I'm not seeing, this is not just an evil person because if she's just evil, then you don't care or you don't want her to be redeemed at the end necessarily. You're kind of just like, oh, I hate you. But I, so I wanted her to be someone that very quickly you could see something had happened to her. I mean, in the same way that, you know, Scrooge, when you go back and he gets to revisit his past with the Ghost of Christmas Past, you see all of the things that have happened to him that brought him where he was. So I think for me, obviously Carol is a kind of blown out of proportion version of a working mom. I mean, she, when we first meet her, she is sort of inventing a work related excuse to leave her family on Christmas Eve and, you know, not make cookies with the kids, which she's promised to do. And go into the office. And so that is something that, you know, hopefully is not happening in most homes, even when the mom is working in general. So I wanted her to be kind of out there. But then I also wanted to give her, as you say, 
some reason for this. And some of the reasons have to do with, you know, traumas that she's had in her past and things that have happened to her that make her kind of want to check out from life. But I think the other thing that maybe is relatable to modern women is that for Carol, after a while, work starts to feel like the place where she's most successful. And home starts to feel like a sort of big mess. It feels like chaos, you know, and I think that's true for a lot of people. You go to work and there are very clear, measurable goals that you can meet. And when you meet them, you get all kinds of positive feedback. You know, you get your year end review and you get, you know, praise or you get your year end bonus or a raise or you get a promotion. Those are all things that feel really good and they're very clear. But if you stay home with your kids, you don't get any of that. You know, your toddler isn't going to say to you, thank you, mommy, for changing my diaper today. You know, and your husband, it's not his job to come home and kind of sit down with you and say, like, you know, well, looking at this report, I see how that you've changed five bajillion diapers in the past year. Well done. You know, and you get a promotion. It, it doesn't it doesn't work like that. And so I think for a lot of women, you know, who like to feel successful, Work is the place where that happens. I also think that we're telling women in our culture that, that this is how you be important. This is how you be valuable is you go off to work and that your children are kind of things that happen along the way. And that's kind of a, a mindset I gave to Carol as well eventually is that, you know, you, you meet a man, you get married, you have kids, but all of that is kind of tangential to the real goal, which is kind of climbing the corporate ladder or whatever it's supposed to be. And then, of course, your children start to feel like a nuisance because they have all these needs and they have all these things that you they need you to do, not just sort of be there with them, but like school pickup and after school activities and all of these things that suddenly feel like a distraction because you've prioritized work over home. And so for me, those were the kinds of sort of real life modern day things that I tried to infuse Carol's story with because I think that those are things that we can relate to and have and have some empathy for. When I was first reading this, um, I really thought about the pandemic a lot because mm -hmm. um, I feel like it comes through, you know, this is something I think, I don't know exactly when you, you wrote this, um, but it feels like something that could have come out from the reflections that I, I feel like a lot of women went through when they were stuck at home uh, and trying to balance in many ways work and home life in a way that was totally different than than the, the way that, um, you know, a lot of us, especially I think a lot of like upper middle class women were were balancing it, which is, you know, with with the help of au pairs or nannies or not that there's anything wrong with all of that. But, um, you know, all that came to a, a grinding halt. All of those routines came to a grinding halt. And also, I think really importantly for women, I think we are just so much more relational um, than men oftentimes. Equally important, I think the social part of work came to an end, right? Um, mm -hmm. Where the conversations that you might have had with your colleagues or the fun you might have had on a conference or anything like that, those all came to an end. And the social um, feeling of having, you know, friends or I hate the phrase like work, family, anyway, um, right. yeah. that social piece kind of came to an end. And it was at the end of the day, it was just your spreadsheets and you. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I think a lot of women, um, you know, really had to to have a hard think about whether what they were dedicating, whether they had children or not, um, whether what they were dedicating so much of their lives to, whether it was really giving them the kind of meaning out of their lives that they they want to have, or whether they were they were inflating its importance. 
um, in their lives. So what, I mean, when exactly did you end up typing this out in between toddler calls and, um, you know, how did your experiences and the experiences of your mom friends and, and other friends in the pandemic feed into this? Well, you're really astute because the pandemic had a big influence on me in terms of thinking of this story. This story came out of the experiences in the pandemic because during the pandemic, you know, I, so I have been a stay-at-home mom since my older kid was born and he's almost nine. So during the pandemic though, all of the working moms, as you say, came home and suddenly everybody was in very close quarters with their kids trying to work and also sort of organize their kids' virtual school. So it was like, you know, oh, my kid has to be on Zoom at this time, but I also have to be on a Zoom call at this time. And it was it was sort of craziness and everybody was feeling very stressed and everyone was realizing that you can't have it all. You cannot work full-time and parent full-time. It's kind of impossible. But the other thing that was happening, and this was kind of surprising to me, that, that first thing I kind of thought like, well, yeah, right, you can't. But this the surprising thing to me was how many people were saying how wonderful it was how wonderful it was to be at home with their kids for all of this time, to spend all of this time with their kid that they normally don't get to spend because they're at work and their kid is at school and then going straight from school to some kind of after school or a nanny. And, you know, then they're not seeing them until like 637 and then it's dinner in bed. And so during the pandemic, they were just kind of sitting around and chatting with their kids. They were reading with their kids. They were watching shows with their kids, whatever it was. And they were saying, wow, you know, this is a kind of interesting and unexpected silver lining to this situation. And then the pandemic ended and everybody just kind of went back to work. And that's kind of where the idea for this story came from, because I thought, you know, it was kind of the, the Christmas of that time when the pandemic had been going on for a while, but then people were starting to go back into the office and kids were going back to school. And of course, every year we watch A Christmas Carol with Alistair Sim. And so it was that moment when I sort of watched that story and I thought, it's the same thing. You know, all of these parents got to come home and suddenly see what they were missing and realize and realize how much they were missing. But of course, because, you know, life is life and nobody got visited by three spirits or anything like that, you know, everybody everybody just kind of said, okay, well, that's fine. I'm going to go back to work. So yeah, for me, it really was about kind of what, what would it take? What would it be like to step outside of that narrative, you know, outside of the narrative of like, well, this is what you do as women. You, you know, you go off, you graduate college, you get this job and you climb, 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 climb. And that's, that's how you have purpose and meaning in your life. What would it be like to step out of that and say, you know, the amount of time that your kids are home with you is such a small percentage of the entirety of your life. What would it be like to kind of restructure and reprioritize so that when our kids are home and need us the most, we are also there? So not like completely amputate any ambition you have, completely amputate any part of yourself that is, you know, other than your kids or other than your home. It's not that. It's just, could we have a different way of being where we also get to be here when our kids need us and want us to be here and when we get to be with them. I mean, that was the whole thing is that they were also happy to be with their kids. And so it came out of all of that, you know, experience was sort of watching that happen. Yeah, I think there's something to be said here and, and a really interesting conversation to be had around women as a, a woman's role um, 
in her home as the keeper of the traditions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even if you're not, because there's there's so much of this. Um, you're you're a Christian. I would say this book is you know includes references to religion in the way that life includes references to religion, but this is not an exclusively Christian or religious book. Um, I was able to read it just fine and not feel like I was being, um, you know, pulled into church or anything like Good, that. <laughs> I was, I was thinking about American Christmas, right? Cause a lot mm. of this is centered around what I would call American Christmas, right? So yep. separate from the religious holiday celebrating, you know, Jesus's birth, there's this 1950s culture around Christmas in America. A lot of it, you know, yeah. some of, some more, um, radical Christians criticize it as too commercial, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, but it's this very beloved set of traditions and every family tends to like interact with it in some way and, and have some little, whatever I'm learning this from, uh, my husband's family my husband's a Christian and celebrates Christmas. I did not grow up celebrating Christmas. Um, and I, I kind of had to, I, I, now that we've done it at home a couple times, we usually went out to his family but because of the pandemic and all the reasons and, um, you know, and not to mention like the price of tickets the last couple of years around yes. Christmas to fly across <laughs> the country. Um, so I, we have been doing these traditions at home and I realized, you know, like, even though it's my husband's holiday, if I don't do it, it won't happen. Like we won't build those traditions. Um, and it, it makes me think about in your book, right? There's this clear, she's almost advocating her role in in keeping the traditions of Christmas. Um, and in that way, she really has masculinized herself. Like, and it turns out, even though she has this, like his wonderful husband and, um, although he's imperfect in his own ways and has his own problems, but, um, you know, she has this wonderful husband, but he's, he's trying, but he really can't do what she can do, um, in terms of keeping those traditions. So I'm wondering what you think about really the degradation of that role. Um, because I feel like we've belittled that role and it, it, it doesn't even have to be uh, as private as family. I mean, if you look at a lot of, I've said this before on this podcast and elsewhere, but if you look at a lot of the community, um, like monuments and uh, parks and stuff, a lot of times it is women who are sort of the keepers of those traditions for their families and then for their communities, for their towns. And that role, when, when so such a large percentage of women went to work, um, you know, that role has really degraded in American life. And I'm, I'm, I really think we suffer for it. That's such an interesting point because I think that you're right. And, you know, in the book, I really tried to make Carol's husband, Bo, not even though he ends up being the parent who is mostly there, you know, he's there for like, if the kid is sick or, you know, or if he school pickup or, or all of those things, he's there. I really wanted to make him not a stay-at-home dad and not a kind of doormat that was just sort of like, oh, yes, you know, honey, you go off to work and I'll stay home and cook and clean. Because I think there is something sort of not quite right in that dynamic. It, it may work for some people and I'm, I'm not, again, I feel like I have two kids and that's enough. I'm not other people's moms. So I'm not supposed to, I'm not going to tell you guys, anybody how to live your life. But for me, you know, there, there was something sort of not quite right about, you know, the woman kind of going off and as you say, kind of masculine, masculinizing herself and, and really abdicating that role. And, you know, I think there's a way in which, you know, all of, yeah, like all of these traditions that in the book Carol's family has, they are actually 
Bo's traditions in a lot of ways, although she has her own that kind of come down and and it it's traditionally sort of because the mom is there with the kids that you know all of these things happen you know that the cookies get made and the you know the uh, decorations get put on the tree and all of these things and and i think you know particularly if both parents are working then there isn't any time for that i mean i i've been thinking lately just in my own personal life how like you know how how would we get all of these cookies made? You know, how would we get all these cookies made? How would we get all these decorations, these snowflakes cut out if, you know, if one of us wasn't here? And I think that that's kind of part of it too, is that if you're both gone and the kids are off at their after school and all these things, then the home is really kind of left without anyone to tend it. And that means that a lot of these traditions have to go by the wayside because you have to sort of pare everything down and down and down and down to just the sort of essential items that, you know, you, you gotta have your presents and you gotta have your Christmas dinner or whatever it is, you know, and so then those things happen. But all of those other things that you're talking about kind of do fall by the wayside because nobody has any time. Yeah, there's, there's, and I, I was listening to you on, uh, on your brother's podcast, mm -hmm. uh, Spencer Clavin. We, we have a, a Clavin literary mafia here, um, Andrew Clavin, <laughs> Spencer Clavin, and Faith Moore. Um, but we'll get, we'll get to a, a question about that in a minute. But, um, you know, there's this generational, I was listening to you on his podcast, and you're talking about how there is this sort of melancholy to right. Christmas. Um, there's a sort of like, it's, there's a built in nostalgia mm -hmm. to this holiday because, exactly those traditions that we're talking about women really being the guardians, keeping the keepers of, but also the updaters of as, as like, as you marry and, and you sort of blend the traditions of two different families. And, um, you know, like, so women are both the, the keepers, but they're not sort of rote performers of it. They're, they're also the updaters, the changers, the, the creators of, of new traditions and in, in this little like sort of family life and bubble. Right. Um, so like, what would you say about, because it, it does seem like there's, there's this, this generational turnover aspect to Christmas. It's very clear in this novel. It comes out in very like sort of realistic and sad ways. Um, but there's a lot of, a lot of people, Christmas is not only a time where they're joyful about it, um, but it's also a time where they remember that, you know, grandma used to sit at the end of a table and do this on Christmas and she's not here anymore. Or, you know, my dad used to do this, um, but my dad has passed on and he hasn't. Thank you. <laughs> Please. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm just making these, these things up. Um, but, you know, th they change. The traditions stay, but the people around the table change over time. And that can be just very both nostalgic, but also very sad. Uh, it makes it sort of a bittersweet holiday for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's why. I think you're right. I think that's why there is so much nostalgia and melancholy baked into Christmas. And you, you know, it's it really is part of the whole kind of gestalt of Christmas. Even like, you know, I like that mashup of the Yiddish <laughs> words for the describe Christmas nostalgia. Yes, well, <laughs> very American. <laughs> very yes, I, very American and also like it's one of those sort of like psychology words that <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yes, the gestalt of Christmas, let's just call it that, is is melancholy. It's in the songs. You know, if you listen to a lot of the Christmas, traditional Christmas songs, not like carols, but like, you know, Bing Crosby and the, the things that, that American songbook singers are singing, there's, it's not all like, you know, holly jolly Christmas, you know, like, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas or I'll be home for Christmas. You know, all of these things have 
melancholy baked into them. And I think it's because of what you were just saying in part, you know, that Christmas is a place where there are so many traditions and they've been the traditions of your family since either since you were a child or even before you were born. But every year you're not the same, you know, because of either because of what you're saying, like people have died who used to be a big part of the tradition or because you've grown up, you know, you used to be the kid running down the hall to see if Santa came, but now you're the mom listening for your kid's feet running down the hall to tell you that Santa came. And there's something really kind of nostalgic and melancholy about that. I mean, it's, it's wonderful, it's joy, but it's also sorrow that you will never be that little kid again. And I think Part of the reason why A Christmas Carol, the Dickens novel, has has stayed with us and part of the thing that I was trying to really convey with my novel is that Scrooge is a character who has checked out of that cycle, that cycle of the joy and the pain of life, but also of Christmas. You know, Christmas holds within it joy and pain. I mean, just like, I mean, going back to this kind of religious reason for the holiday, it also holds joy and pain. It's the celebration of the birth of the child who will then grow up to be the man who is killed, right? And so that that story of Scrooge is about someone who kind of basically says, well, the pain is too painful. So I'm going to opt out of the joy as well. And so he opts out of the whole thing. And it's the the ghosts, they reclaim him. You know, they say, we're here for your, your welfare or your reclamation. You know, we, they reclaim him back into that cycle of joy and pain of life and death. And that's kind of what I was trying to do for Carol as well, that, you know, the things that happened to her in her past were so painful and hard for her to handle that she opted out of that whole thing of the traditions of all of the things that came before and all of the pain that came before. She also opted out of the joy because you can't, you can't do one without the other, especially at Christmas time. Yeah, there does seem to be something about Christmas that uh, that brings that up because, I mean, it, it is so often that opting out is is part of, I don't know, all, I, I'm not a big Hallmark movie watcher. Big surprise to those who know me well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but like that seems to be a lot of the, the um, sort of elements of Christmas stories. If I think about what are the Christmas stories, other than the fact that they take place on Christmas, they often have this sort of, I guess, what Dickens would call reclamation, right? The, the pulling back into this cycle of traditions that come around once a year um, that are so easily discarded or forgotten, whether by pure busyness or for some deeper reason, like like in this, that that they do include so much, you know, pain and sorrow of, of life. Right. Yeah, um, I think that's absolutely right. Go ahead. Yeah, so you, <laughs> how do you feel about the the Hallmark tradition? Are you a big Hallmark person? I am not, although I'm not at all offended by the fact that people keep telling me this would make a really good Hallmark movie. Like uh, that's the number one thing that people say are like, this is great. Would You know, it should be a Hallmark movie. And that, I don't find that offensive at all, but I'm not, I don't watch the Hallmark movies because I feel like there's no tension at all in them. And I think that there has to be some kind of tension in a story in order to really kind of hold my interest. They're very interesting, though, because I think you're right. They're, they are always about kind of somebody who's lost their way or, you know, kind of bought into the whole kind of corporate mentality or they've, you know, they've 
like nixed the whole traditional Christmas situation. And now they have to be kind of drawn back via a small town or a man wearing plaid or, you know, a lumberjack or something like that. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, I think it's, it's a sort of simplified version of what we're talking about. And so I think, you know, they're, they're definitely fun and I get, I get it. I just, I need a little bit more, a little bit more kind of narrative tension in my movies, but. Yeah, I know. For the record, I don't like Hallmark, the couple Hallmark movies I've seen, um, <laughs> because okay. they, they are, to me, like come off as to use, let's let's use more, uh, mix more Yiddish words into this. Like they're too schlocky. Mm -hmm. um, they're too saccharine, which is not a right. Yiddish word for me because they don't have, but this is this is much more plugged into, as we've been talking about, the sorrows of life and and the characters are interacting with things that I think feel real. Like they feel real in interacting with them. It's not like they're not lumberjack who sells christmas tree right. christmas trees on the lot for a living um kind of caricatures right um not that there's anything wrong with it. if you're a listener and you like the hallmark movies you can keep your hallmark movies i'm not like obama anyway yeah no keep them i'm so like and i'm so, i'm never ever offended when people say like this would be a great hallmark movie because i think like that you know i think what people are saying is like this is such a like this is such a you know christmasy feel good kind of amazing Thing. It makes me feel all the feels. And I feel like, great, I want you to feel all the feels. So I'm never offended by that. So there's some, I wanted to ask you about this. So it, it, you're both in Hallmark and in, in this, um, but to different layers of depth, right? And in the original Christmas Carol by Dickens, there is this um, direct sort of choosing of material success over family and over traditions and over Christmas itself, right? Um, and we have polling now that shows like generational polling that young Americans are in the smallest numbers ever recorded. These are like long-term polls, right? Are, so you have the smallest percentage, still more than half, but um, the smallest percentage of young men and women saying that having a family, getting married are, quote, very important to them um, in terms of having the good life. And then there's a corresponding rise in the percentage of people who say making a lot of money is very important to having a successful life, right? Um, and there was a poll super recently, like last week or something, that was getting a lot of splashy headlines about how Gen Z and, and millennials say that they need $500,000 a year to be uh, to be happy, right? Um, wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, don't know, I don't know how much to trust those kinds of like, <laughs> right, kind right. Of like uh, studies say and then something really sensational. But um, there does seem to be, even in these these better worded, longer uh, term polls, there seems to be a rise in, I mean, look, America's never been accused of being a country that doesn't care about material success, right? Um, even baked into Christmas, into American Christmas that we're talking about is, you know, spending quite a lot of money on presents and decorations and, For sure. and <laughs> fancy meals, right? There's there's a lot of, there is a material aspect to the celebration of Christmas. Um, but it seems like upcoming generations have less of a connection to the idea that building a family at all um, is important. Because, I mean, you mentioned about Carol. We've talked several times. You said, you know, it's just uh, her family is just something that kind of she built because it was, you know, what was expected. But where she's actually in recent years putting all of her her time and her effort is in her career. Well, 
the younger generation, especially Gen Z, is putting aside even that idea um, and and directly saying that the goal, like the their the number one goal, is to make money. Um, you know, where where do you think that's headed? Uh, do you think that there is going to be a Scrooge like uh, moment um, if the pandemic wasn't it? Uh, what what do you think is likely to pull people out of that? Again, no problem with capitalism, making money, going to work, but um, not placing it as the highest element of the good life. Yeah, gosh. Well, I think that's a little beyond my pay grade to know what will fix it. I, I But I think that, you know, what does seem to be true is that because we have kind of done away with the kind of traditional idea of family, like the man goes off to work and the woman stays home with the children, because we've done away with that for better or for worse. I mean, obviously there are things about that very rigid structure that needed to change. But when you do that, when you sort of say like, well, everybody go out to work, everybody, you know, follow basically the kind of traditional masculine path, what happens is the the reasons for the for doing the things that we're doing kind of fall away. So it used to be that men had ambition and then they went out to work and they made a lot of money because at home were many children and a wife who wasn't working, who was keeping the home and keeping everything running so that he could spend long hours at the office and make the money that would provide for the family. And the wife was equally importantly raising the kids and keeping house and making sure everyone got to their different activities and, and all of these things. And so she was seeking out a partner who could do that for her. And he was seeking out a partner who could do that for him. And I think now, because we've kind of lost that notion, we it makes sense that everyone's like, well, I'm just, I just want to make a bunch of money. I don't want the kids at home because how would that how would I be able to have my career? And my career is what's most important. That's my priority because I am a woman. I am a girl boss. I'm going out into the world and, and that's what I'm doing. And so I think, you know, you know, there've been all the, all of those, you know, all those TikTok videos lately with all the kind of single women being like, you know, look at me, I'm so single I, and I don't have any children. And isn't it great? Cause I can have my cup of coffee in the morning and no one's bothering me. And I think you know, there's a way in which like you cannot know what it is to have children and what that does to you in, unless you have them. So if that's not the narrative anymore, if the narrative isn't you meet a nice man, you settle down, you have some kids, then and the narrative is instead you forget the man, forget the kids, you do the job, then it does very quickly become a question of like, well, why would I add these really like chaotic, needy beings into my life who would just complicate things. So I think it's the breakdown of that kind of like yin and yang, like I do this so you can do that and you do this so I can do this, like that has caused this kind of weird disassociation from what matters. And so, you know, what would it take to come back? I mean, I think that is the realization that we would need to have, but I have no idea if that can happen or how it would happen. But luckily I'm just a novelist, so I don't have to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know if you heard the phrase lazy girl jobs um, that was super popular. And it it was sort of of two minds, very similar to what you just said about it. You know, on the one hand, um, it ran contrary to the poll that I just cited in terms of a lot of, you know, there was this micro trend essentially of Gen Z girls saying, like, I don't care. I have an email job. Um, I am doing this. So, but like the, the doing this so I have time to do what is like is the exactly. automatic question right which is i mean i think there there's probably a lot of value in in quote unquote leaning out um mm-hmm. but then what are you doing with your time where are you placing the meaning in your life um you know and and that follow up piece was not really part of the lazy girl jobs mm-hmm. conversation right it's if you're not working what are you sort of doing with your time and of course like downtime is important and um, and, and I'm not by any means saying, I mean, it would be a condemning myself, right? If I said, uh, the only way to fill your, your, uh, life, uh, is with, with kids and family, of course, of course. but, but there, there has to be something that is, that you think is valuable and worth your very, you know, short time on this earth. And, and I agree with the idea that that's probably not for all, all but a very few people, your job is not going to be that. Right. And this is true for men, too, which I don't know why, you know, sort of the feminist left thinks that it's not. I mean, um, and to the extent it's not true, it it comes with um, and to the extent that, that like it is true that you have like a really world important job. Right. You're president of the United States or whatever right. it is, that that often comes with its own like, you know, there, there haven't been a lot of presidents who have been great fathers um, or. Yeah. So yeah. even if you have, you know, the wife at home and, and there's a balance to, you know, there is something that you are missing out on now, maybe, you know, for a small percentage of people, that trade-off is worth it. But I feel like for the, the rest of us schlubs, you know, um, your your job probably isn't going to be world-shaking. You're probably not going to change the world and feel like it's meaningful in that way. And, and I do think like the pandemic, as you say, was a moment where a lot of people were looking at their computers and being like, does it truly, truly matter, uh, you know, how quickly I get these numbers into this spreadsheet? Um, you know, it might be good to work hard. I'm not advocating doing nothing with your life and your hours, but it just doesn't feel doesn't feel meaningful, you know, in that really important way. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, the kind of what you were talking about, about the what's it called? Lazy girl jobs. Lazy girl um, jobs. Yeah. Okay. So there was also that that sort of TikTok trend, like I'm not on TikTok, but somehow this all filters into my experience. Um, you know, like that trend of of girls sort of crying in their cars because it, their job takes up so much of their time. You know, it's like, well, I, I have to, first I have to get up, I have to put on my makeup, then I have to, you know, commute to my job and that takes this amount of time. And then I have to be there for eight hours then I have to commute back. And I just, I'm just so tired and, you know, and everyone's sort of making fun of them because it's like, well, everybody, goes to work, you know, what, what is wrong with you? Why can't you just go to work? You know, cause they're like, I just don't have any time for my Netflix and I just have all this stuff that I have to do. And it's kind of like, okay, that is, is laughable. If all you have to do is watch your Netflix, then it's like, okay, put on your makeup, get in your car, go to your job. Like what is wrong with you? But if what you're saying is this is not what I thought I was supposed to be doing. You know, if, if what you're saying is, well, there's something else out there. I don't want to be locked into this nine to five culture. I don't want to be, as you say, like inputting numbers into spreadsheets. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to have 
a home, I'm supposed to have children, I'm supposed to have a husband, whatever it is, then suddenly it's not so laughable. It's not so laughable to, to, you know, have this woman crying because she has to go to work for eight hours a day because yeah, like maybe there's something else you're supposed to be doing, but I think we've kind of, that's what we've lost sight of, as you're saying, that's what we've lost sight of what, what is the other thing? And if you don't know, then, you know, you are just kind of sitting at home with your coffee watching Netflix. So uh, this is this is a. Uh, I really wanted to wrap up by asking you this because, as I mentioned, you are a member of the Claven Literary, the Claven Family Literary Mafia. Yes, that uh, is our official title. Where yes, where your father is a screenwriter and a novelist, um, as well as a political commentator. Your brother, um, I just had on last week, Spencer Claven, oh, um, is writing his second book. Um, well, aside from the academic books that he's already written, um, and is obviously sort of involved in in writing. Um, and then you are a novelist. You have this novel. You're working on a second one. I don't know if you can say what it's about yet, but that's as much as we can say. I am working on a second. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, but but so you, you have this this literary tradition, and, and um, you keep referencing the fact that you watch the Christmas Carol movie every year with your family. This is part of your tradition, and the tradition of your family is is this really deep appreciation for stories, for storytelling, for for writing, for books, for reading, right? Um, how are you uh, putting like the, those traditions, how are you making those traditions survive for your own family? How do you talk to your kids um, and your husband about that love for stories and that love for the narrative form and reading and movies and Dickens and all the rest of it? It's funny because that question is almost like, how do you breathe air? Like, I, I, I feel like there, for me, there is there is no being alive without stories. And so it's very, it feels very easy to me to just sort of fill our home with books and fill my kids' bookshelves with books and, you know, read to them constantly and, you know, be very clear about, you know, mommy writes books and grandpa writes books and, you know, uncle Spencer writes books and, and, you know, they, Wait, they your mother also writes books. No, I said grandpa. <laughs> oh no, no. I, I, oh, grandpa. Oh, yes. I, I thought, I thought it was like, oh no, I've missed a member of the, the Clayton literary. <laughs> well, my mother is the best of all of us. And the, the smartest thing that she does is she's very private. <laughs> she's a very private person, um, which I think is probably um, much, much saner than all of the rest of us going out here in the world and doing this. Um, my mother is, in fact, the best of all of us. But, um, you know, my kids know all of this. It's funny, just just today, my husband was explaining to me that most people don't know someone who's written a book, you know, because uh, because when I, you know, when I was growing up, my dad was a novelist and I always thought that was really cool. But, you know, and I, I have tons of writers in my family. My grandfather was a writer. My aunt is a writer. My brother is, you know, and so that's true for my kids too. And, you know, so that's just, the, I don't know another way, you know, so at least for our family, it's, it's very easy. And I don't, I, I don't even know how to not fill our lives with story, but I think that it's, it, it is something important. And I think generally in the culture, it's something we have to hang on to. We have to remember that stories are important, how to read them, how to tell them without sort of hitting people over the head with messages, because, they are the way that humans communicate and we can't forget that. 
Well, you've written the great example of it. Uh, the novel, once again, by Faith Moore is A Christmas Carol. That's Carol with a K, and you can get it either from Daily Wire Publisher um, and their website, or you can go to any of the, the big box retailers, including Amazon. Once again, uh, I'll remind you that if you're listening to this episode on Wednesday, um, you still have time. You can go to Amazon and order it with Amazon Prime, free shipping, and uh, make your stocking stuffer for Christmas. It's it's a, a wonderful Christmas novel um, that will will fit very well, I think, into whatever Christmas traditions uh, your family has. So Faith Moore, thank you so much for coming on High Noon. Thanks for having me. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can hit comments and question, uh, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave. We'll see you next time on High Noon.